Welcome to Behind the Stethoscope. My name is Joelle Bradley. This podcast is a chance for our local physicians from the Royal Columbian, Eagle Ridge Hospital, and all the community doctors in between to connect. Each show, you will have the opportunity to get to know someone from our community beyond their day jobs. Our doctors come from varied backgrounds, specialties, and experience, and are here with us to share their stories of who they are behind the stethoscope. Today, let's meet Dr. Charlie Chen. He's both a longtime friend and a favorite colleague. Charlie, can you introduce yourself to the audience and maybe share how we know each other? Sure. Thank you for having me on the podcast, Joelle. And I love the fact that I'm still considered a member of the community of the Royal Columbian Hospital and Eagle Ridge Hospital, even though for the last two and a half years, I've now been living in Calgary, Alberta. But I was a palliative care consultant at the Royal Columbian Hospital from 2013 to 2019. Uh, even though for 2018, 2019, I was working mostly in the community of New Westminster, I was still very much involved in some of the activities of the Royal Columbian. And, and that's how we met in 2013 when I started being a consultant at the Art uh, Royal Columbian. Um, you're a hospitalist and, and we connected then. And certainly we also served together on MDs for Wellness, the local uh, physician wellness group, and uh, and got to know each other much better through that activity as well. So it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much, Charlie. I want to let people know that Charlie is a very compassionate physician, a leader, and really an outstanding educator. Through all these years that we've known each other, he's committed so much to our physician community, while all at the same time, managing a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome. Charlie's accepted my invitation today to be on the show and help me and maybe our listeners better understand his experience of being a physician with a chronic disease. So Charlie, where should we start? Well, I think it might be helpful for a little bit of a prologue. So that's how I've structured my story. For most of my entire youth and formative years, I think I could be fairly labeled as an overachiever. And much of that expended energy can be ascribed to the need to, I think in retrospect, cover up my true self. I discovered at the age of 13 that I was different. I didn't have the word then, but in thinking back, I can confidently say that I learned at that age that I was gay. And, you know, being 13, being an immigrant, only three years new to Canada, and just being a teenager, I really didn't want to be different. And typical to any coming out story for an LGBTQ plus person, I was terrified of people learning that truth about me. And I did everything I could to compensate for what I considered then to be a significant weakness, a major deficit. So I overachieved to mask that weakness. And even after I came out in my early 20s and learned how to live proudly as a gay person, and then meeting my life partner with whom I've been uh, for 26 years now, I think I still held those instincts to cover up my weaknesses and continue for a long time to loathe being seen as anything uh, lesser than anybody else. So that contextualizes my journey with a major obstacle in my life, which is the chronic fatigue syndrome that uh, that you had mentioned. 
So I returned to BC after finishing my family medicine residency and palliative care fellowship at McGill University in 1997. And it was an exciting time setting up my career. And in 1999, I found two jobs that were able to balance both the family medicine and palliative care. I shared a family practice with a colleague half time. And then the other half of my time, I worked as a palliative care consultant at a local hospital in New Westminster. And a couple of years into this, my family medicine partner chose to leave the practice to pursue other interests. So being the dutiful physician, I tried to absorb as many of his patients as possible, even though it was only half time. And it got very, very busy, very quickly. And then it wasn't soon after that, we heard that the hospital at which I was doing the palliative care work was going to be closed, governmental cuts. So I persisted and through all of the chaos, I just kept on working and I didn't recognize at the time, but thinking back, I was definitely overworked, traumatized by the hospital closure and just revving really, really fast in order to keep going. And in October of 2004, I got sick. After a bout with a common cold, or I think it was a viral infection of some sort, I just didn't recover. The runny nose and the coughing and the congestion went away, but the fatigue did not. And it was probably the most profound fatigue I had experienced up to that point. It was like I had the flu, but didn't have a fever, didn't have the chest congestion or anything else, but the achiness that comes with the flu, the brain fog that comes with the flu, the inability to get out of bed that comes with a flu was what I felt. And no amount of sleep or rest seemed adequate. And then I felt numbness to my hands and my feet, my joints ached, hands, elbows, hips, knees. And, you know, there were times that I felt like I was neon sign with one part of my body lighting up and buzzing and aching while another kind of dim. And the brain fog was probably one of the worst symptoms. I've always prided myself on my intellect and my ability to comprehend and think through things relatively quickly. And that came to a grinding halt. I couldn't focus. My memory was bad. I was forgetting little things like leaving the fridge door open, leaving the garage door open, forgetting what I was doing from one moment to another, if I got out of bed at all. And it was terrifying, really. And of course, I wasn't able to work. At first, I started calling in sick for a day at a time. And then uh, after um, a week or so of that, I just realized that because something is seriously wrong. And I asked to have an extended leave from work. And I should say that at this time, uh, palliative care work had pretty much stopped because the hospital had closed. There was significant chaos around um, new hospice builds and things like that. So I was in transition in terms of the palliative care work. So the most prominent part of the job that I was doing that I needed to stop was my family practice. So I took some time off and my interaction with the healthcare system began. Charlie, you described this first, like you actually came down with a viral illness. What, what month was it? Like, I, I'm just trying to understand how long this is going on because 
I, I feel your story. And, and if I was like that for, for six days, I'd just be so fearful. And how long were you dealing with this before you interacted with the healthcare system? I got sick in October and got came down with a cold and, and virus. Um, it lasted about four or five days and, and then it didn't go away. So about a week and a half to two weeks later of calling in sick, thinking that it would just kind of resolve, I finally went to see a family doctor and then things started to escalate from there. Yeah, so it, it took about two weeks for me to wrap my brain around something serious was happening. And of course, I was fearing the worst that I was uh, going to be diagnosed with something like uh, devastating cancer um, or another malignancy or something like uh, multiple sclerosis. And I was seen by a ear, nose and throat specialist because I had some ongoing nasal congestion and a post-nasal drip, but nothing really came of that. I was treated for chronic sinusitis and it didn't really seem to make any difference. I saw a rheumatologist who said that everything was fine. And the rheumatologist was because I was having such significant joint pains. And then I was referred to a second rheumatologist because I refused to believe that there was nothing wrong. And that rheumatologist, along with my family physician, did order a whole panel of blood work, testing for everything from hepatitis to HIV to inflammatory markers and uh, rheumatological markers bone scan, CT scan of the head, because I was feeling so brain fogged. And uh, all the investigations at that, at that time returned as normal, other than, you know, I think maybe my cholesterol was a little out of whack. And, and that was probably because I was already not able to, to function normally is, and not able to exercise. So over the following months, I started to, to gain weight. And all this time, it was not only scary, but it was incredibly frustrating um, because I wasn't getting any answers. And I just remained extraordinarily fatigued and achy and foggy and just so tired. So with all of that, it's easy, I think, for anybody to start thinking like, oh my God, is this all in my head? And, and I think one or more practitioners may have said that I was experiencing some form of psychosomatic disorder. But for me, maybe it's because of my own sense of self-importance <laughs> or pig-headedness. I really didn't fall into the trap of thinking that I was just going crazy. What was driving me crazy, though, was not being believed. And as much as the healthcare professionals were doing their best to find answers, I really didn't have anybody to acknowledge the reality of what I was experiencing and, and even just say that, okay, Charlie, we hear you when you say that you're experiencing these things. So there was very much a sense of me being kind of in limbo. And, and what was also difficult was I didn't look sick outwardly, other than the weight gain that I was starting to um, show, I did not have a limp I wasn't requiring extensive surgery, so I had no scars to prove, um, no abnormal tests to indicate any objective signs that something was wrong. So people just assumed that I was okay. Charlie, I wanted to ask you, when you said one of the hardest parts is people just didn't believe you, are you talking about your medical practitioners or colleagues or? Yeah, I didn't feel necessarily believed by mm, the physicians who were looking after me. 
because they kept on looking for answers, and that was great. But I think I needed validation that my experience was real. So maybe what would be more fair is that I didn't feel validated. And I think my use of the word belief is going to come into larger context later on, when I heard somebody say, "Charlie, I believe you," and how meaningful that was. So maybe I'm confounding those things, but certainly I needed the validation, and and I I wasn't getting that. And friends and family, as supportive as, as they were, didn't really understand either, because it's really easy when somebody doesn't look sick. For people to kind of ignore it or brush away somebody's experience, and I can't help but continue to make that connection with me coming out as gay because there are no outward signs that I'm gay. And some people can say that some gay people are more effeminate or whatever, but you can't really—that's a stigma and that's、um, discriminatory because there are lots of people who exhibit certain behaviors and and are the, just the way they are. But you can't tell where their sexuality is. So it it very much triggered a lot of the childhood and youthful stressors and anxieties and traumas all over again, even though I was 35 years old. And Charlie, one of the things that comes to mind—you said your your coping mechanism as a teenager is going to overachievement mode, and that obviously was not possible in two thousand four, two thousand five. No, it wasn't. But stupidly, in my time off, because I was on I was on disability insurance, I had a great disability plan that I had purchased when I was a resident, and I'm so grateful for that. So income wise, I was doing fine, and my partner Tim. Had a very stable job, so we we were not terribly frightened about our financial situation. It was worrisome, but we weren't strapped. But as much as I was taking time off trying to recover, I had such a difficult time resting and lying in bed. Whenever I had a little bit of spike of energy, I would do something, and I remember putting in paving stones in our backyard. So. That overachieving, I'm not weak. I'm going to be okay. Mentality persisted. So one day I would be in my pajamas for the entire day, couldn't get out of bed, barely showered, but not depressed. I had great motivation, great zest for experience. There was no anhedonia. There was no depression. I just wanted to get on with things. And the next day. I would have a little spurt of energy, and I would put in a couple of paving stones, and then crash and burn. And Tim would come home and go, "Charlie, what were you doing out in the backyard?" And say, "Well, I got to do something." But none of that was good for me. And I chuckle at myself when I think back to that time, but in the moment, it was just a lot of confusion and fear, and feeling incredibly lost. So, what eventually led to the diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome? Was my own research because none of the answers were coming back, showing definitive diagnosis. I, being a physician myself, dug into the literature and landed on chronic fatigue syndrome as a potential diagnosis, and it certainly fit all of the symptoms that I was experiencing. And it being a diagnosis of exclusion. In my opinion, it felt like I was at the point where we had done all the tests necessary to exclude anything significant, and I approached my rheumatologist with that working diagnosis, and he accepted that potential diagnosis. But in thinking back, I 
realize now that the acceptance of it was very reluctant. I ultimately don't think that he really thought chronic fatigue syndrome was a real medical entity. Because all the while that um, we were working together, we did keep on looking for other causes for the ongoing joint pains and fatigue. Uh, for example, I was put on more courses of antibiotics because the sinus congestion would come back periodically. I was put on allopurinol for what was detected to be high uric acid levels, but I had never had an episode of gout. And then there were some trials of psychostimulants. I was put on methylphenidate or Ritalin and trialed on modafinil. And, um, and they just made me unable to sleep because they made me so wired. And that is probably one of the most interesting experiences. I would feel so, so tired physically, but my brain would be stimulated and still foggy. So my brain would rev. I couldn't think straight, but it would rev. And physically, I was tired. I think that was akin to some cruel form of torture for those few weeks. So I obviously said, I can't continue with these medications. They're not helping. And then at one point, I think my testosterone level was borderline on the low side. It was still in the normal range, but it was low. So I was put on androgen replacement to see if that would help, but nothing really did. And this dragged on for uh, many months. And the only thing that ultimately helped was time. And in 2005, about nine, 10 months after the onset, some of the symptoms did settle enough. And immediately, of course, I returned to work. Being the overachiever, I didn't really go back. Gradually, I launched myself right back into it. And because I had collected all these extra patients, I was busy. And the halftime family practice became pretty much three-quarter time. And because there was this significant transition, I was wise enough to say, I can't do two halftime jobs. So I let go of the palliative care work. And I focused on the family medicine. And luckily, my disability insurer was able to provide me with some partial disability income as I started working half-time and then very quickly went into three-quarter time. And then that went away because I, my income was adequate to disqualify for me, uh, disqualify me for, for continuing on getting any partial disability. And that was uh, another phase of, of significant challenge because I was not consistent. I was not reliable. I was completely undependable. I would work for a few weeks, feel okay, rev hard, and then crash. And I would crash for a week, feel a little better, and then I would rev again and go back at it. Um, and then occasionally I would call in sick day here, a sick day there. And I just felt so guilty the whole time thinking that I was being unfair to my patients, unfair to my colleagues. And, and yet that overachieving attitude just would not let me stop. The biggest fear that I had during that time was I was so scared that I would actually make um, a medical error. So I tried that for, I think about a year or so of this off and on. And it was so awful that I finally bit the bullet and said, no, I need to take another extended period of time off. We've got to fix this. And 
as accommodating as my disability insurer was the first time that I took an extended period of time, this time they weren't as readily understanding and they took steps to make sure that I wasn't malingering. And I have to say that experience was humbling and somewhat humiliating because I was so uh, reliant on the disability income. I pretty much did whatever the insurer asked me to do. And I went through a whole battery of psychometric tests. I found this quite interesting. They told me that I scored really high on an anger scale. And uh, I just thought, no shit. <laughs> I'm pretty angry. But, uh, but at least it confirmed at the time that I wasn't depressed. <laughs> and they confirmed that I wasn't burned out. I was just really, really angry. And um, understandably so, I think. But they did confirm and conclude that, yeah, I had met the criteria for chronic fatigue syndrome. And they connected me with an outfit. I'm not even sure if they're still around. But they worked with insurance companies to provide assistance for returning to work. And so I worked with this um, agency and embarked on what they thought was best evidence at the time for treatment of chronic fatigue syndrome, which was a combination of some counseling and a graduated exercise plan. What was interesting, though, is that even though the person who was walking alongside of me was offering me counseling, um, she wasn't a counselor. She was supervised by a psychologist. But the day-to-day, -day, I think she had some occupational therapy and training. And it became quite evident. And certainly when I think back on it, I'm pretty sure that there was no specific experience with chronic fatigue syndrome patients. And they were just kind of basing it off on whatever literature that they could find or, or what their um, house physicians said would work. So I tolerated whatever they threw at me. Um, at one point, I drove into Vancouver. I was living in uh, Port Moody at the time. So I drove into Vancouver um, carefully, very, very carefully to see my rheumatologist downtown. And um, when I came out uh, and driving back to my parents where I was going to have for dinner, I noticed that a car was following me. And um, the more I drove, the more I confirmed that yes, the car was following me. And when I arrived with my parents, parked, I walked towards the car. It had also parked about half a block up the street and um, the person drove off. And it just so happened that my sister had a police officer friend and I took down the license plate and the police officer friend was able to track down the driver with the car and confirm that he was actually sent by the insurance company to follow me and track me to make sure that I wasn't, I don't know, going skiing or something. And that was humiliating. And another episode that happened with this counselor, I was so frightened at this point and struggling with the graduated exercise plan. But part of the program was to commit to certain goals. And one of the goals that the counselor wanted me to commit to was to return back to running because I love running and I've always found it highly therapeutic. But in some of the literature that I was reading, I really didn't think that that was a good idea. And yet they thought that it was. And we did have a very heated conversation. And after that conversation, I had a follow-up appointment with a psychologist. And the psychologist actually 
said that my behavior during that session with my counselor was that I was quite a bully um, in that conversation. And I just felt so devastated um, to be labeled that way because I was so powerless in my interactions with, with them. I, I really did not feel like I had any power whatsoever. And it was the one time that I wanted to just kind of stand up for myself and say, I'm not sure this goal is really the right thing for me. And I ended up being labeled a bully. So that was traumatic. And, you know, they were ultimately being paid by my disability insurer to help me return to work. So, and I was dependent on the disability insurance. I just felt so defeated and just went alongside, along with it. And, and I think, you know, with a combination of time, I finally was able to, to return to work this time a little more gradually, but ultimately got back up to about three quarter full time again. And that lasted for a few years. So Charlie, as I listen to how your story is unfolding, I can't help but think there, there's these qualities of being a physician that it's just part of our culture and each one of them were being chipped away and like ego is the wrong word, but like physicians are supposed to be there a hundred percent of the time and they are supposed to be perfect and never make mistakes and, and probably not get sick. And like, you're expected to be a, a superhero and you're not able to fulfill any of that. And then being called potentially a liar, potentially a bully, like, yeah, my heart goes out to you. Yeah. Thank you, Joelle. I do think that ego had a lot to do with it. It's how we're acculturated into the medical profession and how I also grew up and the pressures that I put on myself. Um, so it was part of my fabric to excel and be the best. And when my body failed me, and that's how I saw it then, I would not use those words to describe my condition now, but certainly back then, it very much felt like my body failed me. For that to happen was a total blow to my self-identity, who I thought I was, who I thought I could be, and who I thought I was going to be. So it was requiring a reckoning, and I just wasn't ready for that yet. I wanted to ask you as well. Um, just to, to give you a bit of context, when you had diagnosed, potentially came up with a diagnosis of chronic fatigue with your self-research, just reminds me when I was in med school, I remember being in a teaching team and we were in the company of this gastroenterologist and he was talking to us about the unhappy pentad. And I think in his words, it's a patient that could have any or all five of irritable bowel, chronic migraine, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue and depression. And I remember from the tone of his voice and all the snickering, like I learned then and there, like these have such stigma. And so when I, I heard you say chronic fatigue, you think that's what you had. And what was that like? Because I, I imagine you would have felt stigma with that or share with me. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was a reluctant recognition on my own part. And to bring it up was not something easy to do. But I knew that I had to at least explore that possibility. And, and to a certain extent, maybe that was the beginning of my reclamation of, of myself and reclaiming of power. But it did still take a long time for me to use that term to describe what I was going through 
with any colleagues or or anybody else. It was still within the privacy of the medical office and the privacy of my own home with with my closest loved ones. So the misunderstanding around it definitely persisted. And um, and even for myself, I think the more I dug into it, the more I recognized that that it was legitimate and real. It was still a challenge to try to find people that would see it the same way. And it's so funny, Joel, that you um, named those disorders in that pentad because uh, they all fall, with the exception of depression. Um, depression is different, but in terms of irritable bowel syndrome, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, they all fall under the cluster of disorders called central sensitization syndrome. And in the most current literature around chronic fatigue syndrome, it is being recognized as a form of um, central sensitivity. And the therapy of it is quite analogous to how experts would manage irritable bowel syndrome, fibromyalgia, and, and other disorders such as even post-traumatic stress disorder or primary dysmenorrhea, temporal mandibular disorder. Uh, they, they're all part of this cluster of central sensitization. And, and it, the, the new science is that the brain is significantly sensitized and misinterpreting all of these signals leading to various different syndromes and symptomology. Another one would be Lyme disease, chronic Lyme disease. So they are difficult entities because we don't have any objective tests. And medicine is so reliant on objective evidence. And, and I think part of why I was so attracted to palliative medicine is as much as we are highly reliant on evidence and basic science, especially with pharmacology, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, we are also open as palliative practitioners to the art aspects of medicine and the mysteries that are still left unanswered. And so I think my own palliative care training allowed me to accept the diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome and my experience with my own patients in one of the cardinal rules of palliative care is we believe our patients when they say that they have pain. And I'm so grateful that I had that training and that I never doubted any of my patients when they said to me that they had pain, because I know what it feels like to not be believed when I said that I had pain. So Charlie, I'm hearing that you came to a place where you had a chance to feel quote unquote well for a number of years. And what I'm going to suggest is that we actually stop here and we're going to continue your story on our next episode. How do you feel about that? No, that sounds good um, because there's definitely more drama to come. And to me, it's, it's not drama. It's real life is more interesting than fiction. So let's call this our cliffhanger and we're going to wrap the show up for now. And we will see you guys again next episode. So today I do want to thank Charlie Chen for being our guest to share his story. I also want to thank our producer, Nikki Thorpe, for producing the show today from Bronick Consulting. This podcast is made possible from our local facilities engagement via the Doctors of BC. And as always, a special thank you to you, our listeners. We invite you to connect with us on Instagram or at behindthestethoscope at yahoo.com. Please subscribe to our podcast 
on your favorite podcast platform. If you enjoyed our show and want to see it continue, please consider a donation. It's as easy as going to the rchfoundation.com and donating with a note that says you want your $50 or so to go to the podcast fund. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Dr. Joelle Bradley.